I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Hey guys, welcome. Today is a sort of randomly scheduled live stream. We're going to talk about a bunch of evidence for Christianity. I mean, this this is stuff most people probably are not aware of. Reasons that Christianity is true will give several different reasons. And I think that when you see these things as a whole, when you look at these evidences for Christianity and you compile them together, it's really impressive and it's also really persuasive. So consider this like an introduction to what we call the cumulative case for Christianity. And I have a special guest with me today who's actually going to be presenting a lot of the content. I'll just be doing the interview portion. He's going to be bringing all the awesomeness. Uh, and his name is Jonathan McClatchy. Jonathan McClatchy, here's his little bio real quick so you guys know who you're listening to. He's a Christian writer. He's an international speaker and debater. Uh, he's done, how many debates is it now that you've done? I've done 26 debates now. 26 debates. Like, I don't even want to think about all the time it takes to prepare for 26 debates. Um, he holds a bachelor's degree with honors in forensic biology, a master's degree in evolutionary biology, and a second master's in medical and molecular bioscience. And he'll be talking about some of those related things today. Uh, currently, Jonathan is completing his PhD in cell biology. It's almost over now. And Jonathan is a contributor to various apologetics websites, including crossexamine.org, the Christian Apologetics Alliance, and answeringmuslims.com. He's also a contributor at Evolution News and Views, the official blog of the Discovery Institute. He is the founder of the Apologetics Academy, which I have a link to those his YouTube channel and to the Apologetics Academy website in our description below, that so you can check that out. Um, that is a ministry that seeks to equip and train Christians to persuasively defend the faith through weekly online webinars, as well as assist Christians who are wrestling with doubts. It's like a perfect place for apologetics nerds to hang out. That's why I actually, that's how I discovered Jonathan McClatchy. I was like, Ooh, what's this? It's like, it's like my home away from home. <laughs> so, um, um, all right. So here's the format for today. Here's what we're going to do. And then I'll, I'll, I'll turn, I'll hand it over to Jonathan with some questions, but we're going to just give you basically like seven or so different lines of argument, different reasons to think Christianity is true. And um, we'll first take one of those reasons at a time. We'll explain how that works. Then we'll give an example of that reason. And then we'll cover at least one objection to that reason. So we'll give you the, the, the name of it. Like the first one will be prophecy. We'll explain how it works, give an example of it, and then cover an objection to it. So let's just jump straight in because if we can go quick enough, then we can get to your guys' questions from the live chat. And so I can't promise it yet. We'll see how long it takes. But if we can, we'll get to those questions. So our first subject is prophecy. Prophecy. And I'll, I'll, I'll just ask Jonathan, how does, how does prophecy give us any reason to think, you know, that Christianity is true? Sure, absolutely. Well, Scripture actually lays down prophecy as one of the criteria by which we can know that the Bible is divinely inspired. We'll just take a, a few examples. <clears throat> Book of Deuteronomy springs to mind here. Deuteronomy chapter 18 specifically. This is when um, God is uh, saying to the people of Israel that uh, he, he just he's just promised the, the, the prophet to come that will be like Moses in the future. And of course, this turns out to be the Messiah. <clears throat> and it says, whoever will, this is verse 19, Deuteronomy 18. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord has not spoken? 
when a prophet speaks in, in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And so, in other words, how do we tell whether a prophet truly speaks from, from the living God? Well, if he's able to consistently predict and forecast the future, right? Uh, I can't forecast the future. You can't forecast the future. Only someone who is divinely inspired can forecast the future. One further example I'll give is in the book of Isaiah and uh, chapter number 41, where God is basically challenging the, the idolaters, the idol worshipers, to present proofs and evidences that uh, the idols are actually true gods. And it says, um, and uh, quoting here from Isaiah 41, it says, verse 21, set forth your case, says the Lord, bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them uh, bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, and we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So God basically says that the idols um, have not demonstrated uh, that they are real gods, real deities by predicting the future. Only the God of Israel can forecast the future. Uh, and so um, predictive prophecy then becomes one of the key evidences that scripture prescribes for us to use in order to demonstrate the prophetic nature of the scriptures. So in a nutshell, we're saying like prophecy is a, is a way of saying that what's written in this text didn't just come from the mind of man. And I think that we can we can pretty much all agree that man is not capable of true, genuine prophecy, meaning that something was written ahead of time and that it was verifiably fulfilled afterwards. And it wasn't under the control of the author or those trying to simply fulfill the prophecy through merely human means. So what would you say, Jonathan, is like an example of this biblical prophecy that has been fulfilled that, uh, that you could present as a case for the truthfulness of Christianity? Absolutely. Well, there's two main categories of predictive prophecy that we find in the Bible. Uh, one is messianic prophecy, predicting about the, the future coming of, of God's Messiah, of Israel's Messiah. And the other category of, of predictive prophecy we find is non-messianic prophecy, prophecy that pertains to world events uh, and so forth. So let's take an example of non-messianic prophecy uh, to start with. If we go over to uh, the book of uh, Ezekiel and chapter number 26, this is the prophecy concerning uh, the destruction of Tyre. Uh, let me read from verse 1. In the eleventh year, on the first day of, this, of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gates of the people is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And so here we see this imagery of these waves crashing up, rushing up against the shore one at a time the sea brings up its waves so it's the idea of this successive onslaught against tyre from the nations and 
God is going to to uh, scrape Tyre and make her a bare rock, um, and uh, to be in the, and just the city of Tyre is to be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets, uh, which is quite uh, vivid um, and quite precise and specific imagery. Then we get to verse seven. It says, "For thus says the Lord God: Behold, I bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon." king of kings with horses and chariots and with horsemen and a host of many soldiers. He will kill with a sword your daughters on the mainland. He will set up a siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. He will direct the shock of his battering rams against your walls and with his axes, he will break down your towers. His horses will be so many that their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen and wagons and chariots. When he enters your gates, as men enter a city that has been breached, with the hoofs of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with a sword, and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. And then it switches from the singular masculine pronoun to the plural pronoun in verse 12. They will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise, which I would interpret as a reference back to the many nations that are to rise up against Tyre. They will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. Your stones and timber and soil will, they will cast into the midst of the waters. And I will stop the music of your songs. And the sound of your lyres shall be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock. You shall be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt, for I am the Lord. I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And so we see this prophecy concerning the, the overthrow, the destruction of Tyre. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was the king of Babylon, came up against Tyre and besieged the city of Tyre for uh, 13 years and um, was unsuccessful in uh, in his siege because what happened was basically the people of Tyre uh, in the mainland city of Tyre, uh, they were fed resources from ships because Tyre was the, the capital of the Phoenician Empire. She was dubbed the Queen of the Seas and had a very strong mil- um, navy presence, whereas um, Nebuchadnezzar did not have a navy. Um, and so the the people of Tyre were um, given resources by, um, by, by, by the sea. And then eventually they decided to migrate from the, the um, mainland city of Tyre to the island of Tyre, which is an, um, a kind of a, is, is an island which is uh, um, off the coast of Tyre. And so Nebuchadnezzar, of course, finally breaks through and all the people and all the resources, or at least the majority of the people and resources had, uh, had, um, gone to Tyre, to the island. And so um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was was a bit disappointed. And so, of course, he um, goes after uh, Egypt subsequently. And uh, subsequently, um, Alexander the Great, um, a few hundred years later, uh, um, I think it's in 332 BC, um, goes up against uh, uh, Tyre and he uh, and the people of the people of Tyre decide to do exactly the same thing. They decide to migrate to the island of Tyre, and Nebuchadnezzar um, burns uh, the, the city of Tyre to the ground, and he uses the debris of Tyre to build an to build a causeway off to the island. Alexander, you said Nebuchadnezzar there, yeah. Did I say, sorry, uses the debris. Yeah, Alexander the Great, um, um, of course, um, takes the, the debris of Tyre and dumps it into the sea, build, building an, a, a causeway off to the island uh, of Tyre. And so lit very, in a very literal sense, then, uh, this prophecy comes to pass. The, the city is, is dumped into the sea and becomes a, a place for the spreading of nets because it's now underwater. 
um, in a very literal way. And so that's, a, I think, a remarkable uh, case of, of predictive prophecy in yeah. the Hebrew Bible. So let's just talk for this about about this just for a second. So Ezekiel it lays out the idea that Tyre will be destroyed. It starts off by saying it'll happen by not one nation but many nations. It details specifically things Nebuchadnezzar will do, and then it switches over to a they pronoun, not he anymore, but they, referring to many nations. It seems, and it talks about things that happen hundreds of years later, and they're they're weird things. They're things that don't normally happen, right? Like how often in ancient cultures do people take the rubble of a city and throw it into the ocean? Probably not very often, you know, that kind of thing doesn't happen, but that's exactly what the prophecy requires. And it's exactly what Alexander the Great did. And it's confirmed. Is this confirmed to us in purely Christian sources? Uh, no, this is actually confirmed by secular sources. Yeah. So we have a pretty impressive case of prophecy here in great detail and unlikely events, not things you could foresee or guess about, you know, if, if you were just living at the time. Um, so what's an objection? We said we'd cover an objection. What's an objection people have to, to this prophecy about the destruction of Tyre? Um, so one objection that's raised is that, um, that the, they, uh, pronoun here in Ezekiel, uh, 28 is actually still referring to Nebuchadnezzar and, and it's all referring to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the whole way through. One of my, uh, responses to that is, uh, if you look at, um, the book of Zechariah, and chapter number nine also speaks about um, the destruction of Tyre. It says the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord is an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Um, and so there we see um, a prophecy concerning the destruction of Tyre by fire. And of course, Alexander the Great, as you know, raised the city of Tyre to the ground by fire in 332 BC when he, um, when he um, broke through into Tyre. Now, if we look back at, at chapter 7, just two chapters earlier in Zechariah, we actually have a timestamp for when Zechariah was, um, was prophesying. It says, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Cheslev, etc., um, which is actually several decades after um, the, the um, siege by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, suggesting that actually there was something even yet further future in view uh, at that point. Yeah, so the, so the consistent uh, prophetic statements, when you add not just Ezekiel, but even bring Zechariah in there, is that there is yeah. this future destruction of Tyre, not just the thing that Nebuchadnezzar did. Um, yeah, so there's there's more we could cover there, but let's talk about a messianic prophecy. And I think you were going to mention Isaiah 53, which is one of my personal favorites. Absolutely. Um, so Isaiah 53, um, is, uh, let, let me just read uh, Isaiah 53. It's a really beautiful text, which is written 700 years prior to uh, the Messiah. Um, and it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Uh, this is starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Uh, through Isaiah 53, 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they've not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant 
and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich men in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so here we see a passage which uh, speaks of the the future Messiah of Israel. Uh, I think points uh, very forcefully and vividly uh, towards uh, the person of Jesus Christ in an unmistakable way. You know, I think um, I think with that scripture you just read, a lot of people hear you reading it, and maybe some of the viewers right now, you're thinking like, you're just reading stuff about Jesus. What is, how is this prophecy? But okay, Jesus came, we're talking around 30 AD, the crucifixion happened. But, but Jonathan, when was the passage in Isaiah actually written? So this was written 700 years before Christ. Um, so it's an absolutely remarkable prophecy uh, concerning the coming of, of Israel's Messiah. Um, and notice that he uh, he's portrayed as sprinkling the nations, which is uh, something which speaks to his uh, priestly capacity. You know, the priest uh, would sprinkle the, the mercy seat with the blood from the, from the sacrificed animal um, mm-hmm. uh, on the altar. Um, and yeah, and the, he's sprinkling, not, not just the, for the Jewish people, not just for the Hebrews, right? It's for the nations. So the idea exactly. that this Isaiah 53 character is going to be like a, a ritual sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world, not just the, the stuff that the law was talking about. Absolutely. Um, and so, so he's burying a sacrifice. Um, and with that, he's sprinkling the nations, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Um, and then as we continue reading the text, it turns out that that sacrifice is his own body, is himself. Um, and so it's, uh, it's an absolutely remarkable text. Um, and also we see the, the deity of Israel's Messiah in this text. Um, I have four different arguments for the deity here, but let me just give you one uh, argument for, for the deity of Israel's Messiah just from this text. If you look at verse 13, of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Um, if we go over to, there's a few other places in Isaiah where that phraseology is used. One is in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of Israel filled the temple. We also see it in Isaiah 33, verse 5, verse 10, also Isaiah 57, 15. One other example um, is Isaiah 2 where it speaks about the great and terrible day of the Lord saying, 
that uh, enter into the rock, this is verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man should be brought low. The lofty pride of man should be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts is a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and that shall be brought below, against all the satyrs of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the yokes of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And so the, uh, according to all the Messianic texts, the, the Messiah is to reign and establish peace and worldwide justice on the earth after the great and terrible day of the Lord. And yet here it says, on that day of the great and terrible day of the Lord, Yahweh alone will be high and lifted up and exalted. And yet we just read in Isaiah 52, 13, that the Messiah, the servant, is high and lifted up and exalted. Who then does that make the servant by implication? Of course, it makes him Yahweh. Right. So that's just one of, of four different lines of evidence, I think, support the deity of, of Christ just from that text in Isaiah 53. Yeah. And for those watching, like I recommend you guys do a thorough, thorough study of Isaiah 53 because there's so much like you could literally spend hours and hours on just that one passage and all the connections of other scriptures to it. So there's a casual reading that tells you this is clearly about Jesus and definitely written ahead of time. Then there's the in-depth reading that gives you deep theology about the sacrifice of Christ and the uh, interconnectedness of the scripture on that issue. So what would be one argument? I, I can present it to you, actually. What's one argument against Jesus being identified by Isaiah 53 is, I'll, actually, I'll give you two. One of them is, hey, this isn't even about Jesus. This is about Israel. And this is like the modern Jewish rabbinic argument. It's not the ancient one, but the Ancient Jews were more on our side here, but the, but the modern rabbinic argument is Isaiah 53 is not about Jesus. It's about Israel as a whole. What's a quick response to that objection? Yeah. Yeah. So um, for one thing, uh, the, uh, if, if the, if it's the suffering of, of the nation of Israel that provides atonement for the Gentile nations, that doesn't make any sense of the various other passages um, in uh, the, the Bible, including in Isaiah where uh, the God uses the other nations in judgment against Israel, and then his hand turns upon the other nations for overdoing the punishment. For for example, in Isaiah 10, uh, the nation of Assyria uh, is called the rod of God's anger against Israel, and then God turns his hand in judgment upon the wicked king of Assyria. You also got a similar thing going on in Isaiah 29. You can also see this in Jeremiah 30 and 31, um, etc. So Zechariah 1. Um, so you have various places throughout the Bible where uh, God uses nations as judgment against israel and then turns his hand in judgment on these nations they don't bring uh um they don't bring justification to those nations um they don't bring healing to those nations uh another another objection to this view is that it says in sf 53 um by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for a generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of, of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So how then can Israel be judged for the sins of my people, which in this case is Israel, because my people refers to Israel here, having himself done no wrong, right? And no, there being no deceit in his mouth. Furthermore, um, Isaiah speaks about the nation of Israel in quite unflattering terms. For example, in Isaiah, 6, um, in Isaiah chapter 6, in Isaiah's temple vision, when he just beheld the glory of Adonai on the throne, 
in the temple, he, he falls to his knees saying, Woe to me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Um, he speaks about uh, the... Um, he, he speaks about... Uh, um, um, Israel, Israel sins many, many times throughout the book of, of Isaiah. As, Isaiah. So you're saying even, even Isaiah himself wouldn't qualify as this servant. And Isaiah is this amazing prophet of God, but he's a man of unclean lips. And even in Isaiah 53, it's, he says there, all we, all we, that's the inclusive word, right? We've all, like sheep, we've gone astray. Right. So how is there any, <laughs> yeah, right. it's clearly a distinction between this guy and Israel. And yeah. what he does is for Israel, but it will also sprinkle all nations. And this is so like to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. This is so the gospel. Um, and and maybe one further point um, is that if you look at the servant in Isaiah 42, which is the same servant for many reasons I could give. Isaiah 42 speaks about the same servant. Um, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations and so on. That servant is then in the latter half of chapter 42 contrasted with the unrighteous servant, which is Israel, right? Um, And then in chapter 49, the same servant is spoken of and actually called Israel. In verse three, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. And this servant in verse five God says, um, now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. So now we have a singular individual Israel who redeems and regathers national Israel. So there's um, many reasons, I think. Um, and that, of course, provides the, the backdrop to why in the New Testament, Jesus is represented as the new, the greater, the righteous Israel. Yeah. Oh, I, I love this stuff. And we got links below for all these arguments. If you want more details on prophecy or any of the other arguments we're about to share with you, I have links in the description that go into greater detail. This is just meant to be an introduction, give you a few talking points, a few things to think about, and maybe persuade you that Christianity is true. I mean, that is my goal. <laughs> so um, let's uh, let's move on. Let's move on to the unity of the Bible. This is a separate argument from prophecy. We just scratched the surface of prophecy, but let's talk about the unity of the Bible. Um, how does this work, the unity of the Bible? The idea is that when we look at the Bible as a whole, we realize, okay, we have 66 books by over 40 different authors written from on different continents, hundreds of years apart from each other. I mean, Genesis was not written anytime near Malachi, which wasn't written anytime near acts or revelation or something like that. But what we see as we look through these is we see that there is like, there is a mind, you know, guiding and directing the content of these texts so that there will be one overall work with certain messages for mankind. We're seeing inspiration through the unity of the Bible. We're seeing divine inspiration. So um, this is something really amazing going on here. And it's aside from prophecy, although prophecy is related to it. So um, what would you say uh, is an example of the unity of the Bible, Jonathan? Sure. Um, so this is a pattern or, or phenomenon in scripture that I call intricate harmonies, which is where we have um, various passages scattered across different authors, genres, uh, centuries, which interlock so as to be subtly consistent on a matter that's, ha- that's rather surprising. Um, so one of my favorite examples of this is the concept of divine plurality in the Old Testament. Uh, re- viewers will be familiar with the, the, the New Testament doctrine of the Trinity, um, which is to say that God is one being comprised of three eternal divine persons. Uh, that doctrine, I think, actually is not 
a New Testament doctrine, but actually it finds its roots fundamentally in the Old Testament. Um, and this is what we mean when we talk about the the unity of Scripture. Let me give you an example. Um, and uh, of course, uh, as Mike just said, I'm just scratching the surface um, on this. There's I've literally got a two-hour lecture going, going through a lot of this material. So I'm just going to give you just a few examples. Zechariah chapter 2, from verse 6. Um, this is the context here is Israel is in Babylon, uh, in exile, and God is promising deliverance and restoration of his people. He says, up, up, flee from the land of the north, that's Babylon, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And so here we have three times we read that Yahweh has been sent by Yahweh, right? So he says, read that, read verse 11 again. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So Yahweh has been sent by Yahweh. Now, there's um, there's a response that that, uh, that, that that you will find if you read the critical commentary. Um, the, 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 the interpretation I gave is found in critical commentaries. There is alternative interpretation or counter-interpretation that's sometimes given, which is that this is just Zechariah interjecting here. Um, that actually it's Zechariah saying, then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Uh, one of the problems I have with that is that um, in Zechariah chapter 4, it says in verse 8 and 9, the word of the Lord came to me, that Zechariah, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, his hands will also complete it. Then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So here we have the word of the Lord speaking to Zechariah, saying, then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So you have this this concept of, of divine plurality um, in in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, let me just give you think yeah. about the unity of the Bible. Is you start to, especially when it comes to the person of Jesus, right, and and of who God is. There's all these passages that just don't make sense isolated, but when you bring the unity of the scriptures together, you go, "Wow, this is embedding Christian theology throughout the text of the scripture and kind of forcing us into." the theology that we have today as Christians. So it speaks to two things, what we believe, but also the fact that it was divinely inspired, not in the mind of man, but in the mind of God, carrying throughout these different authors, different times. I mean, get get different authors to agree on theology, you know, <laughs> and here they are teaching the intricate details in these subtle ways. It's powerful. So what, what's a maybe another example from of that? Sure. Um, so let's go to the book of Proverbs in chapter 30 in the first four verses. This is often overlooked. Uh, when we read through Proverbs, the word of Agar, son of Jackie, the oracle, the man, de- the man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Now, um, 
obviously son of God can have a few different connotations in the in the Bible. Um, in Luke three, for example, Adam's a son of God. Um, Jesus identifies as son of God. In Hosea eleven verse one, Israel is identified as son of God. In Second Samuel seven, First Chronicles seventeen, Psalm eighty nine, uh, the sons of David are called son of God. So, what is the sense in which son of God is applicable here? Well, notice the context. Uh, this individual, Agar, is contemplating the unfathomability or the incomprehensibility of God. And he's saying, I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. So God's nature is incomprehensible to us. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? So he's asking a series of rhetorical questions. And the answer is obviously God. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? God. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? God. Who has established all the ends of the earth? God. Now, and this is, what is his name? Now, to know someone's name is a Jewish idiom for to understand their nature. And so in context here, he's saying, what is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know, don't you? And, and the, the answer to the rhetorical question is no, because God's nature, which is read, is incomprehensible. It's unfathomable. And so if God's nature is incomprehensible and unfathomable, then we don't know the name. So what is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Um, and so in the same sense that God's nature is incomprehensible to us, so likewise the Son's nature is incomprehensible to us. So there we have uh, two divine persons right there. Yeah. I love this. So it's presenting to us that there's that uh, God is beyond your knowledge, but it's telling you something about him. He has a son, and you also – so he does – there is the son, God the son, but you don't know that much about him. It's this progressive revelation. When he shows up in the New Testament, it answers all these sort of hanging question marks left mm. from the Old Testament, yeah. So maybe just one more example. Um, this is one is in Ze- this one's in Isaiah 63. Um, this is one of my favorite ones. Uh, from verse 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel. He has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior and all their affliction. He was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Now we've got three divine persons here and I'll demonstrate this um, uh, for you. If you look at uh, the way that the Lord God's described, it says, In verse eight, for he said, truly, they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. So here God is represented as a father to the people of Israel. So here we have the people here. We have God, the father. We also have an allusion to the Holy Spirit in verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Um, If you look at Psalm 78 and verse 40. um, We have the Lord God referred to in those very terms. It says, speaking about uh, the Israelites' rebellion in the wilderness, how often they rebelled against him, the Lord God, in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. So it's the Lord God himself who was grieved. Um, And so this verse 10 of Isaiah 63 indicates not only the personal identity of the Holy Spirit, who can be grieved just like a person can be grieved, but he's also deity if you look at it in conjunction with Psalm 78, 40. But who's the third divine person? We see in verse 9, and there were on the reflection he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Now, who's the angel of his presence? Well, the um, the term that's translated angel in the Hebrew Bible is melach. 
which is the equivalent of the Greek word angelos. And in both cases, melach uh, uh, or angelos can refer to angelic creature, but can also refer to a messenger. It can refer to um, human messengers. It can refer to angelic messengers. It can even refer to God himself. Um, for example, Malachi is the possessive form of melach, meaning my messenger, right? So um, when it speaks about the messenger of his presence, that's an allusion to the book of Exodus and chapter 23 and verse 20, where um, it speaks about the the messenger who God sends before the children of Israel. Behold, I send an angel before you, a messenger before you, to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. So he bears the very name of God himself, and he has the authority and prerogative to forgive and pardon sins. A prerogative that is, um, which is a divine prerogative. Um, and very He's briefly, Jesus exercising in Mark chapter two, exactly. I have the authority to forgive sins. Exactly. And what's interesting is that if you go over to Zechariah three, we have something very consistent with this. In Zechariah chapter three, um, this is when, uh, again, we're talking about nation of Israel being um, brought back out of um, exile in Babylon. And Joshua um, here represents um, the uh, represents the nation of Israel. And it says, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord and Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord to his chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And that's interesting, by the way, because here we have Yahweh invoking the name of Yahweh, although it's a, as, as though it's a different person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, it fits so beautifully. And, and if you take this angel of the Lord thing and you just look at the occurrences of the angel of the Lord going throughout the Bible, you'll see the unity through multiple different books of this similar, very com- complicated teaching about the plurality of God. And, uh, I, and so in the video description, I put a link to a series I've taught on Jesus in the Old Testament, where I go through this more systematically. It's like 20 something videos. And um, I know, Jonathan, you've seen some of those. And uh, so that's there if you guys want to follow up with more stuff there. Um, right. And yeah, it's um, amazing. And yeah, exactly. And he goes on and he says, it's not this a brand plucked from the fire. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And of course, this represents the sins of the nation. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Um, and so it says, I, I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothe them with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And so here we see again, very consistent that the angel of the Lord has the authority and prerogative to forgive sins. Um, and so it's, it's beautiful just how it all hangs together. And there in Isaiah 63, we see the three members of the Trinity who, and by the way, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord or the angel of the presence is identified as the Messiah in uh, several different texts. There's several different arguments for this. I'll just give one very quickly. In Malachi 3 says, Behold, I say my messenger, he will prepare the way before me. And Ha'adon, this is the title only ever used of Yahweh, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the messenger of the covenant is the Messiah. Now, who's the messenger of the covenant according to the Old Testament? The answer is in the book of Judges, chapter 2. Um, here we go. Judges chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord, the Melech Yahweh, um, went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, 
and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, but you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So the angel of the Lord identifies himself as the messenger of the covenant, which then correlates with Malachi 3, indicating to us that indeed the angel of the Lord is the messianic figure prophesied. Man, I love this stuff. Like, I just think it's, people don't realize how how profound this is. We take the Bible for granted because a lot of us, we sort of grew up hearing these things, but never thought deeply about them. So we don't realize how thoughtful this is and how impressive this is to find this unity of the Bible in these various texts. Um, and we could go on more. We could go on for hours and hours. We could talk about Abraham's offering of Isaac. We could talk about the, the, the nature of the priest's robes. We could talk about Melchizedek. We could just survey the, the phrase, the servant of the Lord throughout the scriptures and see the unity of the Bible and how it points us to Jesus and um, could not have happened through the mind of one man. This is about evidence. The Bible's inspired of God um, prophecy and uh, what I called unity of the Bible, which, which Jonathan, your term for that is intricate harmonies intricate harmonies. And there's, there's a lot more we can talk about there, but I do want to, uh, my friend, uh, Cameron Bertuzzi over capturing Christianity asked me, he, he cheated and he sent me a private message, asked me to ask you this. He says, ask Jonathan why the unity argument doesn't work for other religions like Islam. Mm. So the Quran was, uh, written by one individual. Um, I know Muslims believe it was written by Allah and it's eternal tab entirely scribed in tablets in paradise or 8522. Um, and it was delivered piecemeal to Muhammad over a 23-year span between December of 609 and 632 AD when Muhammad died. Um, but I, I don't accept the divine uh, origins of the Quran. And the Quran, as far as I'm concerned, was written by by one individual over a very short period of time, 23 years. Um, and by contrast, the, the Bible was written over a 1,500-year span by as many as 30 or 40 different authors. Uh, we have different genres of text. We have not just historical narrative, but we also have poetry. We have wisdom literature. We have apocalyptic literature, um, etc. So we have we have legal literature, of course, as well. Um, so we have all these different genres, different authors spanning centuries, and with with such a, a subtle consistency on matters that are highly surprising. So something like the the divine plurality of God is something which is very surprising for humans to invent or come up with it's it's very surprising that humans would have come up with this mm -hmm. idea of yet of affirming monotheism and yet within monotheism there are um multiple persons that that share the divine essence uh so that to me is a quite powerful argument that scripture is indeed divinely inspired now do you know um any argument against the unity of the Bible? Like, well, let me put it this way. Here's an objection. Oh, you know, they did that on purpose. These different authors, they, they did that unity of the Bible thing deliberately. And um, it just, it just so happens that it, it, you know, they did a good job with it and they made it, they made it all work and co be cohesive and stuff. What would be a response to that? It's, it's that you, um, you, that you have these interlockings and the subtle consistency that it's, it's a lot of these things are not brought out explicit, ex explicitly, um, but you connect passages together. And then when you put all the pieces together from these different authors and different writings, then suddenly it all begins to make sense by putting pieces of a jigsaw together that don't tell you the whole picture singularly, but when put together, then you have a, a masterpiece, um, a tapestry 
uh, that that's, that's very um, that the, 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 that portrays an image. And when we look at the New Testament and we read the New Testament in view of this Old Testament backdrop, then it all fits together and makes makes a lot of sense. Um, so the the New Testament then becomes kind of the decryption key <laughs> that unlocks what's going on uh, in the Old Testament. Great. So that was that's about inspiration. The arguments we've presented so far are about inspiration, which which implies the divine mind behind the text of Scripture, which validates and affirms the truthfulness of the things that we're reading in the Bible. And I find that really impressive. But there's so much more. So we're gonna. I, I don't know if we'll have time for questions today because because we're, we're gonna do it. This this is the important stuff. And if we can, I'll get to your guys' questions. I don't know if that'll happen or not. Uh, I apologize ahead of time if it doesn't. Um, but I want to talk about undes- undesigned coincidences. Undesigned coincidences. Again, this is now not about so much inspiration, although it may well be related, but this is really about historicity. Could you explain what is an undesigned coincidence? Yeah, so an undesigned coincidence is when you have multiple uh, documents that report an event which interlock in a way that's highly surprising if the story is being invented or if one source is copying from the other or if both are copying from a common source. Uh, so it it uh, it points to the historicity of a passage. It's basically it's when you have interlocking uh, documents which in, that that integrate with one another in a way that points to truth. So um, the the basic idea is like, hey, these these two things, these two uh, stories or two passages, they're connected together because the content they're discussing really happened. Just like mm-hmm. two eyewitness reports are a little different. Um, but they would have the undesigned similarities or coincidences that would tell us there was a real historical core. So what would be like an example of uh, an undesigned coincidence? So, so the classic form of an undesigned coincidence is when you have a question that's raised in passing by one source, which is then mentioned, which is then addressed uh, incidentally by another source. Um, so I'll give an example to illustrate. Um, if you go over to the book of the gospel of John, and chapter number six, here we have the narrative concerning the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. And in verse five, we read, um, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Raises a, a, an immediate question in the mind of the audience. Why does Jesus turn to Philip here in particular? Why not say Judas Iscariot, who was in charge of the money bag or someone like that? Or Peter, well, James, John. Yeah, exactly. One of the chief um, disciples. Exactly. Um, if you were six chapters later, it's a completely different part of John's gospel. In John chapter 12, this is speaking about um, a different Passover when uh, there were some, some Greeks wanting to see Jesus. It says, now among those who went out to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so here in a completely different part of John's gospel, six chapters later, we learn incidentally that Philip is from the town of Bethsaida, right? Now, if we go over to Luke's gospel, this is a totally different author now, totally different book written uh, decades earlier. Luke chapter nine. This Luke chapter nine also narrates the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. And it says, verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him all they had done and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And that's where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. But Luke does not tell us he turned to Philip. So so um, by providing that detail that the event took place in, in Bethsaida, Luke then compliments John. So Luke tells us that the event took place in Bethsaida, but does not mention Jesus turning to Philip. John mentions Jesus turning to Philip, 
but not that the event took place in Bethsaida. But John 12, six chapters after the feeding of the 5,000 narrative, John tells us that John is that, that Philip is from Bethsaida. And so when we put the pieces together, we have a cogent explanation for why Jesus speaks to Philip in John 6, 5, because Philip's a local guy. He knows who the shops are to buy bread. That's the sort of pattern that is very uh, unsurprising uh, on the hypothesis of historicity, but rather surprising on the hypothesis of ahistoricity. Yeah, it's like it implies that the authors have this genuine inside knowledge that they're pulling from. So they just coincidentally agree with each other on random little details. And when you pull it all together, it makes even more sense. Um, and there's even other stuff about the feeding of the 5,000, about like the length of the grass and the time of year that it was when it happened and stuff like that, right? I mean, this just 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 neat. What, what's, what would be another example of an undesigned coincidence? Sure. Uh, let me just give you one or two more. Um, so one of my favorite ones in, in the Gospels is in John chapter 12. Um, John chapter 12, six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table, etc. Um, and so six days before Passover, Jesus approaches Bethany with the 12. And it turns out the following day, he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And there you have the triumphal entry. So that's in John 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that, was come, that had come to the feast had heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed to see who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, and so on. So uh, if John is correct that this happened, six, that Jesus approached Bethany six days before Passover, then how many days before Passover did he enter Jerusalem on the back of a donkey? Five, right? Five days before Passover, because it's the, it's the morning after he arrives in Bethany. Now, if we go over to Mark's account, Mark chapter 11, it says, when they drew near to, um, to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it, etc." So here actually Mark telescopes the narrative a bit. He doesn't even mention that Jesus approached Bethany the night before and then it was in the morning he goes into Jerusalem. Um, but let's, let's assume that John is correct, that Jesus enters Jerusalem five days before Passover. Um, when we get to Mark 11, verse 11, it says, He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. If John is correct, then that would be the end of five days before Passover, because it's the evening then. Verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. That would be the beginning of four days before Passover. When you get to verse 19, it says, when evening came, they went out of the city. That would be the end of four days before Passover. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. That would be the beginning of three days before Passover. Then when we get to chapter 13 of Mark, we have the Olivet Discourse, which takes place on the Mount of Olives. And uh, the and the, the Mount of Olives is midway between Jerusalem, where he's been all day, and Bethany, where he's been staying. So this we can assume that he's on his way back for the evening to Bethany. And this would be the end of three days before Passover. Then we turn up over to chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so it synchronizes or calibrates perfectly with John, exactly the point where we'd expect. It says it was now two days before the Passover. 
even though Mark didn't even give us the timestamp of when he approached Bethany and entered Jerusalem. Uh, so that's, uh, to my mind, really, really beautiful evidence for the uh, grounding of the Gospels and eyewitness testimony that it gets these very extraneous details correct. Uh, John gets the specific disciple that Jesus turned to at the feeding of the 5,000 correct. He gets a specific day correct that Jesus uh, entered Jerusalem or approached Bethany. Um, one further example um, from the New Testament. I'll just take one from, from Acts and the epistles because uh, the epistles of Paul provide uh, evidence for the substantial reliability of the book of Acts and confirm to us that Luke was indeed a traveling companion of Paul. Um, this is my favorite example from, from Acts and the epistles. If we go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says uh, in verse 17, that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. So when Paul's writing to the Corinthian church in the mid-50s, he's already sent Timothy to them. Now, Paul is writing to the Corinthians from Ephesus. We know this because at the end of the letter, he sends greetings from Aquila and Priscilla, whom he, he met in Corinth and traveled with him as far as Ephesus, we know from Acts. So he's writing from Ephesus to the Corinthian church in the mid-50s. And he's already sent Timothy at the time he's writing. We learn that from 1 Corinthians 4. But in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10, we read, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. So even though he's already sent Timothy to the Corinthian church, he nonetheless expects his letter to get there before Timothy gets there. Now, um, Ephesus in relation to Corinth is, is across the Aegean Sea. So Ephesus is, is in Asia Minor. Corinth is the capital of Achaia, what we now know as Greece. And there's the Aegean Sea between them. And it seems that... Uh, the, the most natural way to send a letter by boat would be by boat from Ephesus to Corinth over the Aegean Sea. Whereas we'd infer from those little clues in 1 Corinthians that Timothy must have taken the indirect overland route to Corinth, going up through Troas and Macedonia. When we go over to Acts 19, verse 21 and 22, we learn about when Paul is in Ephesus. And it says, after these events... Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, that's where Corinth is, and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I had been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So indeed, he stays in Asia while sending Timothy and Erastus up through Macedonia. But Acts doesn't even tell us Corinth is their destination, but it calibrates and synchronizes perfectly with what we'd expect given those clues in Corinthians. Isn't that so beautiful? beautiful. Oh, yeah, I think this stuff is really neat. This is the kind of stuff I think people, we, we lose people on it a little bit, to be honest, because there's so many details that we're juggling. Yeah. But the point is that if you can actually think through this un, these undesigned coincidences, it's a really strong argument for historicity because this just simply, you can't reasonably expect any of this stuff to be there if these documents are being made up or fabricated. Different authors, different times with these coincidences that indicate historicity. If you guys want more information on this, I've put a couple links in the description below, one to a video on the topic, a lecture, and the other one to a great book by uh, Lydia McGrew called um, Undesigned Coincidences. Um, so that's there, and I do encourage you guys to check it out. This, again, it speaks of historicity of the text. In particular, we're focusing here on the New Testament. Um, really neat stuff. It gives us multiple witnesses and confirmations of the historicity of the events of the New Testament. Um, so let's talk about something similar uh, or related, I should say. It's not exactly similar, but it's related, which is the general reliability of the Gospels and Acts. Mm. Um, what would you say is when I, when we say the general reliability, we're, we're, we're saying we can build a case coming from like historical evaluations to say you can't just dismiss this as as just fable, just religious nonsense, just pure propagandizing. 
there's there's historical reliability of these texts, which lends even stronger credence because it's very hard to rip out all the miraculous stuff and still call them a historically reliable text. You start to you're just assuming your anti supernaturalism at that point. So, what what, what exactly uh, would you say is some reasons to believe the Gospels and Acts are historically reliable? Yeah, there's there's an avalanche of evidence I think supporting the Gospels and Acts as substantially reliable and indeed grounded in eyewitness testimony. We've already talked about undesigned coincidences. There's a whole bunch of other patterns and evidences that bear on this question. Um, one of them is extra biblical corroboration. Sometimes something in the Gospels or Acts is illuminated or explained further when we read uh, Josephus or Tacitus or someone like that, uh, which provide us with um, corroboration for the events. Um, so, for example, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. Um, and so that's the only occasion in the entire Bible when we read about Herod Archelaus. Mm-hmm. And uh, the question is, why is Joseph so afraid of Herod Archelaus? Why is he afraid to return to, to Judea when he hears that Archelaus is reigning in place of his father, Herod the Great? Well, Josephus, Flavius um, Josephus was a Jewish historian who uh, who wrote uh, 20 volumes known as Antiquities of the Jews and some other works as well, such as the Jewish War. Uh, and his autobiography and against Apion and so on and so forth. Um, in uh, he, he was uh, uh, he, he, in his Antiquities of the Jews, Volume Seventeen. He tells us that the domain of Herod the Great was divided among his sons, with Archelaus having authority in Judea but not in Galilee, which was governed by his younger brother Herod Antipas. And we also know from Josephus, Archelaus had acquired quite a bloody reputation. So, for example, there is a reference in Josephus where he describes uh, uh, a situation where uh, Herod the Great, uh, th- or th- there had there had been some Roman eag- there had been a Roman eagle erected in the Jewish temple, and the Jews were a bit upset about this because of their obsession over graven images. So they had taken it upon themselves to have the, the eagle removed from the Jewish temple, and Herod the Great found out who was responsible and had them brutally executed. And this caused a great amount of unrest among the Jews. And then Herod the Great died. And uh, Herod Archelaus began to reign in Judea. The Jewish Passover festival rolled around and there was an influx of Jewish pilgrims coming into Judea for the Passover. And an argument was struck up between some Jewish pilgrims and a group of Roman soldiers. And this Jewish mob picked up stones and they stoned the soldiers and some of those soldiers died. And then Josephus reports that they picked up their sacrifices and they ran into the Jewish temple, apparently thinking, I'm on base, can't touch me. And Archelaus was enraged at this threat upon his new government. So he rounded up his entire army and he set his entire army upon the Jewish temple. He surrounded the temple with the cavalry, the horsemen, told them, do not, do not let anyone leave or enter the temple. He sent the infantry, the foot soldiers, into the temple, and he there massacred 3,000 Jews, and then announced, Passover is cancelled. Return to your homes. And so you can imagine Joseph on his way back from Judea, uh, to Judea from Egypt, 
encountering this mass of fleeing pilgrims coming out of Judea, hearing what just happened and thinking, hmm, maybe I should go to Galilee instead of Judea this time. Maybe it's not the best time to go to Judea. Yeah, so what we see is, right, while Herod the Great was reigning, he governed that whole area, Galilee mm. and, and uh, Judea, all of it. And so then when he died, and, and they, they fled from him, Joseph and his family fled from him. But then after he died, when his sons took over, they went to the region that was less dangerous because it wasn't controlled by the son who was more bloody. Exactly. Um, let me just give uh, one more example from the Gospels and then another one from Acts. Um, this one's from Mark chapter 10. Uh, this is when Jesus is giving teaching about divorce. It says, uh, so Pharisees came up and ordered to test Jesus, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, why does, uh, why do the disciples ask him again about this matter when he's just given a response? And there's an objection here that critics often like to bring up. The Jewish law made no provision for a, for a woman to initiate divorce proceedings against her husband. Jewish law only made provision for a man to initiate divorce proceedings against his wife. Now, the objection is that perhaps that Mark here was a Gentile who betrays his ignorance of Jewish law, or perhaps he's deliberately fudging Jesus' teaching to make it more suitable for a Roman audience where a woman could initiate divorce proceedings. But what's interesting is that Josephus gives us some information that there, uh, that uh, Herodias had taken it, this is quoting from Josephus, Herodias took it upon herself to confound the laws of our country to divorce her first husband in order to marry Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, of course, had divorced his previous wife um, and in order to marry Herodias, and uh, his previous wife had gone running home to her father, Aretas, the fourth king of the Nabataeans, causing a war, of course, between Herod and, uh, Antipa and uh, Aretas. Uh, what's interesting is that Herod, Herod Antipas was tetrarch of Galilee, the very place where Jesus is giving this teaching. And so it fits very, very neatly with that. Uh, just one further point relating to that, actually. Um, in Luke chapter 3, we read about John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan. And um, it says, uh, so the different people are asking him what they should do. And it says in verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what should, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Now, this is the, the, the word translated soldier here is actually an active participle. Literally, it means those being soldiers or those soldiering. Um, and these are soldiers on active duty. But wait a minute. This is a time of relative peace. In, this la in the land. There's only one military conflict going on at this time, and that's the conflict between Herod the Great, sorry, Herod, Herod Antipas, and uh, his former father-in-law, Aratus IV, king of the Nabataeans, over uh, Herod having divorced Aratus's daughter. 
And Josephus tells us that Herod had built a military fortress called Machaerus at the north corner of the Dead Sea. The Jordan River flows north to south into the Dead Sea. And so these soldiers, it seems, are on their way to shore up the military garrison at Machaerus, and they ha- it ha- their, their path happens to be directly where John the Baptist is baptizing along the Jordan. Um, and so then that, again, synchronizes perfectly with what we, we find from those external secular sources. Um, yeah, so and this stuff is just yep. the tip of the iceberg on the topic because it, what we're doing is we're taking a passage, comparing it to secular sources, we're gathering it all together going, this is, it's period perfect. It's like, this is exactly what was going on at the time. This controversy happened then. It didn't happen later. They're addressing it. And so this kind of thing is suggesting general reliability as to the content of the works. Yeah. You want one further example from Acts? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, This is from Acts. So this is chapter 23. This is when Paul is before the council. It says, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, wait a minute. Paul didn't know who the high priest was? Well, um, the, uh, the answer is in Flavius Josephus, who tells us this is approximate, this is around AD 58, um, when Paul was apprehended and brought before the Jewish council. Um, Ananias, to whom this was spoken, of, wh- of whom this was spoken, was in truth not the high priest, but he was sitting in judgment in that assumed capacity. So he'd previously held the office, he'd been deposed, and another, the, the person who'd replaced him had been murdered. And another had not yet been appointed to the station. So during the vacancy, he had of his own authority taken upon himself the discharge of the office. And so then that illuminates Paul's words. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize he was the high priest. Um, so it's, it's, again, a very beautiful uh, corroboration or confirmation of the veracity of Scripture. Yeah. And, it, and what's great about it is it's not explained in the text. You only mm-hmm. understand through historical investigation that the light goes on. And yeah. so that's what is interesting about these these coincidences. We have all kinds of stuff too. Like the Book of Acts has these intricate details about shipping, and, and you know about where ships would travel and how they would do things. And the way that that Luke writes about it is in such a way that indicates that he was there, but he didn't understand why they were doing it. But he just records it, and then later we find out the why. And it's just this really neat. Anyway, I have some resources in the description for both the Gospels and then for Acts on their historicity through general reliability, a fantastic book by Peter Williams written on the, uh, are the gospels or can we trust the gospels? And that's really, really good. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about um, the origin of the disciples belief in the deity of Jesus. Now this is, this is a separate argument from everything we shared so far. It's an additional argument. We're adding all these up to say, Hey, there's a bunch of reasons to believe in Christianity. Um, so let me start with this. Maybe you can lay the background for us. Uh, why would it be hard for the unlikely for people to come to believe in the deity of Jesus, given their Jewish background. Yeah. So it seems that it's unlikely that uh, the original followers of Jesus would have come to conclude that he was God had not Jesus himself said, made that claim of himself, Uh, especially given the Jewish view of the Messiah, the Jewish uh, view of crucifixion and the Jewish view of God. Um, So the, um, 
various texts in the Old Testament, like Numbers 23, 19, that God is not a man. Uh, they weren't expecting a, a divine Messiah. Uh, they weren't expecting a, a Messiah that uh, that would be crucified. The, the Messiah, in their view, was um, was uh, an individual who would lead a revolt against the Roman occupiers and reestablish uh, an eternal Davidic reign, not suffer the excruciating and embarrassing death of a criminal. Um, and in fact, um, Justin Martyr in the second century had a dialogue with a Jewish philosopher by the name of Trifo. And Trifo says to Justin Martyr, when they're debating, is Jesus the Jewish Messiah? He says, these and such, such like scriptures, sir, compel us to wait for he who is son of man shall receive from the ancient of days the everlasting kingdom. But this so-called Christ of yours was dishonorable and inglorious, so much so that the last curse contained in the law of God fell on him for he was crucified. Um, so the um, so it, it seems very unlikely that the Christians would have invented the deity of, of their Messiah had Jesus not himself claimed that. And it also seems unlikely that they would have held on to that belief had Jesus not risen from the dead and demonstrated his, his, uh, his credentials. And I think that some would, at this point, they might listen to our earlier discussion about, we're talking about how the Messiah was, was, was Yahweh was going to be Yahweh. That's in the old Testament. But what we have to understand is the Jews at the time of the first century, weren't expecting that to be the case because their interpretations of the old Testament were being governed by the scribes and Pharisees who had their own doctrines and teachings that went way beyond the teaching of the old Testament. So they weren't anticipating necessarily what the Old Testament said, but what these sort of um, middlemen were telling them. And that did not include the idea that the Messiah was going to be divine. It was against all their expectations at the, at the time to think that Jesus would be divine. This, this belief had to come from somewhere. And what could have convinced you, you know, at that point that, that this Jesus was divine? This, it, it seems to be the events themselves that convinced them, not any kind of preconceived ideas. They were brought into new theology in their world, new theology. They were brought into it through a conviction about Jesus that was established because of the events of Jesus's life, his miracles, his resurrection and whatnot. So um, here's another objection to that. What, what about people who say that the deity of Jesus is just borrowed from pagan deities? This is a super popular online argument. Um, it's maybe not very scholarly, but they say, oh, it was just borrowed from pagan deities. Like Jesus is a rehashed pagan deity. He's Osiris or he's whoever else. What would you say to that? Uh, no, because the, the, the presentation of the Messiah in the gospels is I think thoroughly grounded in the old Testament is it's not, I think copied from pagan deities is, is derivative from the old Testament. So if anything, the parallels are between the gospels and the old Testament, not to pagan deities. Yeah, it's like it ignores the Jewish context of, yeah. of the scripture, which is actually the root of, I think, a good amount of um, uh, wrong thinking when it comes to understanding the, the Bible in general is to realize it's Jewish. This is a, just a Jew. The whole thing is Jewish. <laughs> Beginning right. to end. Um, so uh, is there something else you want to mention on that or should we move on to the next one? Uh, let's just move on. All right. So natural theology is the next category. And this is a broad category. We're going to talk about several different arguments that we'll call natural theology, or you could say it's like the God of the philosopher. Um, and by that, I don't mean a different God than the God of the Bible. What I'm saying is philosophy and science are different ways of evaluating the world around us and coming to true beliefs, um, or at least trying to, right? And those different methods, philosophy and science, as opposed to say, looking just at the text of scripture, um, they give us a, conf a confirmation that the, the, the God the Bible speaks of 
is the same as the God that nature is revealing. And so um, we use, that's the term natural theology. We look at nature around us and say, what can we learn from that? So uh, what would be, I guess we'll start with this one, what's called the cosmological argument for God or the Kalam, cosmological argument for God. Uh, well, what is that exactly? Yeah, so the cosmological argument or the Kalam version of the cosmological argument runs like this. Premise one, everything which begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. And we can say certain things about that cause, namely that it must be transtemporal, spaceless, and immaterial, having brought the time, space, and matter continuum into being. Uh, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Um, the, uh, the, the universe began to exist is very well confirmed by numerous scientific observations. Um, the so-called cosmic microwave background radiation, or CMB, that's left over from the Big Bang, uh, the second law of thermodynamics, that things tend towards disorder. So the universe at one point must have been fully wound up. The fact that the, the stars are, or the galaxies are receding away from, from us at a speed proportional to their distance. It's called, it, it indicates the expansion of the universe. Uh, all of these cumulatively, and there's many other evidences as well, point towards the, the origins of the universe. That our universe is not eternal, but it began to exist. Um, and really, every worldview must come back to an unmoved mover, something which exists as a brute, as a brute fact, out of the necessity of its own nature, that is not contingent, that was never caused to exist by something else. And our universe is clearly not the unmoved mover because our universe began to exist. Uh, and I would contend that the best explanation for that unmoved mover is, is God, a being which exists necessarily um, and uh, is enormously powerful, um, and I think we can argue that he's also personal and intelligent. Uh, part of the case for that, of course, would include the fine-tuning of the universe uh, for life to exist. So this is this Kalam cosmological argument is, to me, and, and forgive me, you might not agree with me on this, Jonathan. It's okay if you don't. That's fine. I don't mind disagreeing with it. To me, it's common sense brought into a careful philosophical argument with scientific support. But it's just when you look around and you go, something caused all this that something must have been God. Like that's like the common sense way of doing it. But here we're doing it through like careful, well-defended premises and uh, and conclusions. And we have links in the description for more details about the Kalam cosmological argument. You guys can check in, into that if you'd like. But the idea is it's just obvious from creation that God exists and a more thorough examination um, about the beginning of the universe gives, gives us uh, more robust, you know, ways of presenting that uh, do, does that make does that make sense do you agree with that or do you think i'm being too uh too uh, flippant <laughs> no i agree with you yeah man i i, I think that's I, people ask me my favorite argument for god's existence i just say common sense <laughs> <laughs> which, which most people don't seem to like but i think it's just i think it's just true um so there's, that's the Kalam cosmological argument. There's actually several other cosmological arguments, but we'll just give you the one. Let's talk about fine-tuning. Um, so there's two different kinds of fine-tuning that we can talk about as being evidence for God. And one we'll talk about will be biological fine-tuning. And this really fits into where you've done your 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 real major work, you know, even your PhD that you're almost done getting uh, is in this kind of area. So bio, biological complexity or design, how, how does this give us evidence for God? Why is that a reason to think that God exists? Yeah, so um, we've known for, for many, many decades that life is chock full of digitally encoded information uh, that, uh, that determines and controls and regulates the processes of life. So we know that uh, the hereditary molecule is called deoxyribonucleic acid, uh, which is 
better known as DNA, DNA. Uh, which uh, codes for, uh, or one of the jobs of DNA is to code for proteins. Uh, DNA itself is uh, um, along the spine of the sugar phosphate backbone has um, ke um, chemical subunits, which are represented by the letters A, C, T, and G, which stand for adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. And the sequential arrangement of those nucleic acid, uh, the, these nucleotide bases, they uh, they determine the sequential arrangement of amino acid subunits that comprise proteins. And so what happens uh, in a eukaryotic cell, like that cell in you or me, is that the DNA will be transcribed uh, into messenger RNA, which is an intermediary molecule on the way to becoming a protein. So DNA is double-stranded, double helical, um, and then it, um, the messenger RNA is single-stranded. It will be shuffled outside the nucleus and taken to what's called a ribosome. And the ribosome is like a, a molecular protein factory that basically creates proteins. And I want everybody to hear the term. The ribosome is a molecular protein what? Factory. Factory. It's not, it's, it may be really, really tiny, but it's not super, super simple. It, it's doing something complicated in a sense, right? Right. And so the, the amino acids are brought in and they are um, attached to uh, RNA molecules called transfer RNAs. And they basically align the amino acids with the appropriate uh, 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 code, what's called a codon. A codon is a triplet of nucleotides, uh, ribonucleotides, um, which uh, which codes for, for an amino acid. So they're basically function like words. Um, so, e so each word in the DNA language is called a codon and it's comprised of three letters. And each of those three letters will code for an amino acid. There's 64 different types of codons and there's 20 amino acids. Um, and so there's a, what's called a genetic code redundancy where you'll have uh, sometimes um, uh, an amino acid might be specified by more than one codon. Um, so, you, uh, and then you have, you have an initiation codon, which is AUG and you have, um, you have um, termination codons uh, to, to signal stop or stop codons. Um, so there, there's an enormous amount of complexity there. Um, and, in every realm of experience, when you find codes, uh, what, um, when we're dealing with uh, computer programming scripts or text in the pages of a book or a newspaper headline, what's this type of source or causal explanation or, or um, category of cause which explains the origins of that information or code? Well, intelligence, intelligent design. Uh, to, to, even to form the simplest cell, and the simplest cells require at least uh, two or three hundred different proteins to function. Um, and I mean, the proteins themselves are are not simple things, right? You have to have all these different amino acids put together in just the proper way, folded in the proper fashion, and all this kind of stuff, right. and it's the cell membrane yeah. the right way. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 incredible, and and one uh, one way that we can test the evolutionary paradigm is by looking at the ratio of stable and functional protein structures relative to the vast array of combinatorial possibilities. So, um, so as I mentioned, so proteins like, what, are the, what are the chances this could happen if it wasn't on purpose? That's right. Exactly. So, so, uh, so as I mentioned, the proteins are comprised of subunits called amino acids and the properties of those amino acid side chains determine the way that the protein structure will collapse into its three-dimensional conformation. And uh, one way, what, uh, there, there's a test that we can perform, and I think Darwinism and design make competing predictions 
as to the result, which is, okay, so out of all those possibilities, say, say you've got 150 amino acids along protein, for example. Well, with 20 different types of amino acids, that's 20 raised to the 150th power of possible ways of arranging those amino acids. That's 20 times 20 times 20, all the way up to 150, right? That's a huge combinatorial space. To put that in context, there's only 10 to the 80 subatomic particles in the known universe, right? So that's a huge um, space of possibilities. Now, Doug Axe um, has done some great work on this topic, uh, looking at um, a particular enzyme complex called beta-lactamase, which confers antibiotic resistance to certain bacteria. And uh, according to his work, using a technique known as site-directed mutagenesis, which he performed at Cambridge University during his postdoctoral work, the results are published in the journal Molecular Biology. He um, has estimated that the ratio of, of structural and functional, uh, stable and functional protein structures within that space of possibilities is only 10 raised to the 74th power, which is a very, very, searching for a tiny, tiny needle and an enormous haystack and having very limited time. So let me, is, let me rehash what I, what I think this means. Okay. And you can tell me what you think. So we're saying like, hey, um, proteins are required. You have to have proper proteins for the, uh, any, any cell. And we're saying, what are the chances that amino acids, even if you had the systems in place to gather them and make them into proteins, what are the chances that they would randomly find the right amino acids in the right orders in order to produce those proteins? And he's saying that not only are those chances astronomically low, but the chances of them folding into any kind of protein are really low, which means there's nothing then for evolution to work on to, to modify because nothing's happening in the first place. Right. And when we're dealing with the origins of life, it's even more difficult because you have what's called the homochirality problem. Uh, because the uh, amino, acid, amino acids come in two sorts of flavors. You have left-handed amino acid called isomer and right-handed amino acid isomers, right? Um, and uh, the amino acids that we use in life are all of the left-handed isomeric form. I'm left-handed uh, too. I just want you to know that. <laughs> and uh, um, when, when you produce uh, amino acids uh, in the lab, such as in the Miller-Urey experiment, for example, 1953, you produce a 50-50 mixture. It's called a racemic mixture of left-handed and right-handed amino acids. Um, the probability of producing all left-handed amino acids is is very it gets smaller and smaller the more amino acids because each each time you have a 50 50 chance of getting a left-handed amino acid so uh so that's also prohibitively difficult um and also that problem is compounded by you don't just need any old proteins that are not put together in a way that actually uh functions as a biochemical pathway or a molecular machine you need specifically crafted protein structures to fit together to perform an overall job so many molecular machines, including DNA replication, which of course is essential for um, for um, cell division and, and passing on uh, your genetic material to the next generation. Uh, also, even cell division itself requires, among in bacteria and in eukaryotes, um, requires a very highly complex and controlled process involving many, many, many proteins, uh, which have to be very specifically crafted and coordinated to perform their jobs. Um, so it's, uh, I, I think that there's no chance really um, uh, to, to um, that the, the, the biological complexity could have arisen by chance and necessity type of mechanism. Yeah. So we're saying before, before these living cells can get to a point where they are even potentially being impacted by natural selection and uh, mutation, we, we have a 
basically obstacles that seem insurmountable through natural means that also indicate uh, code and intelligent design. So this is you could you could this is part of a case against evolutionary theory, at least at least Darwinian, right? But but more specifically, it's a case for design because if we're saying well if 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 this whole thing that's going on with biological complexity throughout history, the start of it had to have been a design. That would be the point here, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the, the, so that's the argument from fine tuning. This actually, just so you guys know, um, the most infamous atheist of the 20th century, a guy named Antony Flew, he um, he argued and debated and, and preached atheism for many years. <laughs> and then in his in his uh, later years, and I think it was in his 70s, he ended up uh, saying, nope, I was wrong. There really is a God. And the thing that changed his mind was the biological complexity that that scientists had discovered that Darwin never knew about, but that we discovered in the 20th century in particular. Um, and that's the thing that changed his mind. Um, sadly, he did not become a Christian, but he at least saw the error of atheism. And so that was a, that was a good thing. This and, is a powerful and, argument. And, and since you mentioned uh, fine-tuning, uh, let me also mention that the genetic code itself appears to be very highly fine-tuned and optimized. Uh, so uh, it seems to be exquisitely fine-tuned. Uh, and by the genetic code, I mean the the mapping between the codons and the amino acids uh, that exists that form the genetic language or the genetic code. It seems to be f- very exquisitely tuned to protect the cell from the detrimental effects of substitution mutations. Uh, it's in fact so brilliantly set up that codons differing but only a single base either specify the same amino acid or an amino acid that's a member of a related chemical group. So in other words, the structure of the genetic code is set up to mitigate the effects of errors that might be incorporated during translation, uh, which can occur when a codon is translated by an almost complementary anticodon. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's a remarkable process. And you, you, you cannot easily evolve a genetic code uh, because you would have to, if to, to change the, the mapping between codons and amino acids, you would need to change every polypeptide produced by the cell, which is going to cause mayhem. So how do you search through all those possibilities of, of, of possible genetic codes to find, the, um, to find such an optimized and finely tuned genetic code by a chance-based mechanism? It seems that design really is, is by far the best explanation to account for patterns like that. Yeah, good stuff. So um, let, me, let me ask now, um, what would be one really quick objection somebody would bring to this case for intelligent design uh, from biological design? Uh, well, a popular objection, not very good objection, but a popular objection is what uh, is called the God of the gaps objection, which is uh, to say that, uh, okay, so you're just using God as a placeholder for that of which you are ignorant. You, you can't explain feature X. So you'll just uh, plug in God or an intelligent designer to explain it until we have a better scientific explanation. Um, the problem with that is that intelligent design doesn't really work that way. Um, intelligent design is not a, is not an inference based on what we don't know about biological complexity, but rather it's an inference based on what we do know, uh, namely that biological systems are chock full of information content, and information content in every realm of experience traces its source back to an intelligent cause. So it's based on these standard principles of scientific reasoning with respect to the past. It's based on the historical abductive method, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say we infer to the best explanation from multiple competing hypotheses uh, using uh, the standard principles of uniformitarianism, the present is the key to the past, that 
when we have certain causes that we know in the present produce certain types of effects, namely information, uh, then uh, we can infer uh, inf intelligence is the best explanation uh, when we find this this uh, case of information in biological systems. Uh, so that's uh, that's uh, how I would, I would address that that objection. Yeah, and and it's and information theory is the is the theory behind the idea of intelligent design, and it's what like the SETI program uses when they point their telescopes up at the sky and they listen to beeps and blips coming from the universe, and they go, "No, that's a pulsar because it's just a regular repeated sound. It has no information in it. But if they right. received an informational signal with code, they would go." There's an intelligence behind that. And what we have in DNA, what we have in, in, in the biological complexity of life is way beyond just the blips of a code. It's a complicated um, biological design that's there. It's pretty impressive stuff. Um, so let's talk about fine-tuning the other kind. Fine-tuning that's not about humans, not about our biological design, but it's about the universe itself. And what we're saying is that, that here that the universe, and correct me if you, if you feel I mispresent this here, but the universe itself, um, the constants and quantities of things in the universe, this demonstrates the idea that somebody has monkeyed with the physics and the quantities of you know elements in the universe uh, on purpose to make it just so for specific reasons. Um, does that sound about right? Yeah, um, exactly. So there's there's various constants and fundamental properties of our universe which seem to be very finely designed and set up to uh, to allow life, not just as we know it, but life of any kind to exist anywhere at any time in our universe. So, for example, uh, the cosmological constant, which determines how rapidly the universe expands, is thought to be finely tuned to one part in 10 um, raised to the 120th power. Um, which is, um, you know, on the, we've got one um, as a numerator over and the denominator, you have one followed by 120 zeros. So um, that's an exquisite level of fine tuning. Uh, you, ha uh, you have, if, if it was a little bit different, if it, then either the universe would expand so rapidly that, um, that you never get the formation of stars, planets, and galaxies, or too slowly and you get a big crunch scenario. Either way, no life. Um, or um, the, the, um, the gravitational constant has to be finely tuned. The the ratio of the strong and weak nuclear force has to be finely tuned. Um, one of the most remarkable ones, probably the most remarkable one, um, has been uh, revealed by um, uh, Roger Penrose at the University of Oxford. Uh, he was a physicist, a mathematician, not a Christian, not a theist. Um, uh, he was shown that, or calculated that the um, initial low entropy conditions of our universe is finely tuned to one part in 10 raised to the 10 Race the 123rd power. So in the denominator, you have 10 to the 123 zeros, which is more zeros after the one than subatomic particles in the known universe, which is 10 to the 80. So you in other words, it's just impossible. The point is, it's not going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so basically, he showed that the vast majority of configurations of matter result in universe dominated by black holes, which is not conducive to life. And so um, that, that seems to be a, pro a problem for the uh, for the for the chance based process uh, chance hypothesis with respect to the origins of of, of the universe. Mm. So there's a lot more there, but um, let me ask you this: the points that you just made about about the fine tuning of the universe is this a controversial view in physics in the astrophysics? Uh, it's not particularly controversial that the universe is fine tuned. Uh, there are some people who who reject it, but by far the majority of scientists. Uh, 
accept it. Um, I, there's only a, a handful of physicists who would reject it. There's piles and piles and piles who would support it across the theological spectrum. So it's not especially controversial. Um, and there's so many different independent parameters and constants and fundamental properties of our universe, which are finely tuned, that even if one of those turned out not to be as finely tuned as we thought, then you still have tons of other ones that are strong. Um, yeah. So there's a cumulative case for it. Case, exactly. Hmm. Exactly. So, there, so what, what best explains it? Well, my my approach is to argue as, as a Bayesian that it's, uh, I, I, um, I think that uh, that the evidence is far more uh, expected on theism than it is on atheism. Uh, even given the most uh, generous estimations of the probability of each of these parameters or constants on, on atheism, I think that uh, on theism, it's far, far more likely um, and so I would subscribe to the theistic design hypothesis as the best explanation of the cosmic fine tuning. Yeah, that's, it's neat stuff now. Okay. There's a few objections to this whole idea of like the fine tuning of the universe. And one of them is, um, uh, that we shouldn't find it surprising. And here's, I'll just put it to you this way. We shouldn't find it surprising that we happen to live in a universe that allows for our, our existence. Where else would we expect to find ourselves? Of course, we live in a universe that fits the fact that humans can exist in it. Um, well, how would you respond to that? Is that really an argument? Yeah, John Leslie, who's a philosopher, put forward a good um, illustration that responds to this. Namely, imagine that you are blindfolded and taken before a firing squad, and you uh, you hear all the all the rifles fire, and then the blindfold's taken off, and lo and behold, you're still there. And you think, oh, well, I shouldn't be so surprised that I'm still alive. After all, had I been dead, I wouldn't be pondering the question of why I'm still alive. So it shouldn't be very surprising. Uh, well, no, that's, that's, um, that, that's not a, a good reason to, uh, to um, get yourself off the hook of having to explain why you're still there. And likewise, uh, we still have the question that's on the table as to why the universe is finally tuned and why it's biohabitable. Uh, even though uh, we wouldn't be able to ask had it not been. Um, yeah, that objection, it seems to me just like a way of, let's not ask those questions. I don't mm-hmm. want to, and I've even heard scientists say it, like we shouldn't even be asking why the universe is there. We shouldn't ask, these are atheist scientists, <laughs> we shouldn't ask why it's finely tuned the way it is. These are dumb questions. And I'm like, that sounds like a religious position to me. <laughs> but um but yeah, so we have the fine-tuning of the universe. Um, now, let me ask you this. We've given biological design, the Kalam argument. We've given fine-tuning of the universe. Why don't these present an argument for Hinduism? Why Christianity, not Hinduism? Uh, well, I, Hinduism, of course, is polytheistic. Um, and uh, and uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are the monotheistic religions, which propose a transcendent creator who exists beyond time, space, and matter, who brought the universe into being ex nihilo. Uh, that's not the, the Hindu concept of, of God. It's being transcendent. You, you cannot, I think, have more than one infinitely uh, powerful being. Um, I don't think you can have more than one infinite being because one deity would have to lack some property that the other one possesses. And so um, uh, so that that's why I, I don't think that the Hindu God would, would cut it here. Yes, yeah, so there's isn't like a, a mere argument that religion is right, but rather we're saying that, you know, scientific and philosophical investigation gives us some details about God. You add these details up and you get an intelligent, purposeful designer who's incredibly powerful, who's eternal, who is not part of the creation. 
And that fits the God of Christianity. It definitely does not fit the descriptions uh, in other religions, many other religions, even some offshoots like uh, Mormonism. That's not the theology of Mormonism. So, so that's ruled out. Um, but Christianity is still there. We said Judaism, Christianity, Islam, which then becomes a discussion about what is actually consistent with the Bible, um, among other things. And there the answer is going to be Christianity. Um, so let's talk about the Trinity for a minute. Uh, uh, you have a philosophical argument for the Trinity that you can present. In other words, an investigation of the mind about what God is like suggests that the Trinity is, is, is likely true. Um, so what is that exactly? Right. So uh, one of God's essential attributes is, is love. Um, God is a God of love. Uh, it's even one of the 99 beautiful names of Allah um, in the Islamic religion. Uh, but the, there's a problem here. If you, if you suppose a monadic deity that, that that's a Unitarian God, like the God of Islam, then who is God loving prior to his creation? Um, obviously, uh, self Selfless love is superseded is, is supersedes in greatness selfish love, love directed towards oneself. Um, and so God is essentially selfless love. That that is an essential attribute of God. He is essentially loving. Uh, but if if God has no one to love before he creates the universe, then he has to be dependent upon his creation, which is foreign to uh, the Abrahamic concepts of God is certainly absolutely foreign to the Muslim concept of God, where God is dependent upon nothing, including his creation. Uh, so that I think suggests that God is multi-personal. Um, but why, why, why not stop at two? Why, why say that there's three divine persons um, and, and, or why not say there's four divine persons or five divine persons? Um, Richard Swinburne in his book was Jesus God has before an argument where he argues that, that introducing a, a, a third divine person introduces a new quality of goodness or, or a new kind of goodness, namely cooperation and sharing that love with, a, with another. Um, whereas introducing a fourth divine person introduces no new fundamental quality of goodness. And so three becomes the, the best number for maximizing divine greatness. Um, and so uh, a fourth person obviously would be superfluous and God wouldn't be a necessary being. Um, and so three becomes the, the the best number at that point. So that that's the, the argument that Richard Swinburne puts forward in his book, yeah. Jesus God. Which I find really interesting because it does actually give us a reason for, and it says we're not putting the case of the Trinity on this particular argument by itself, but it is a piece that's interesting, you know? And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, yeah, what, you know, God's alone. Who's he, who's he going to love? God's a plurality. Okay. He loves himself. God's a triunity. Well, then now, we have a greater expression of love, each loving two, you know, um, be, multiply beyond that and it, it doesn't achieve anything new. And so we reduce it to Trinity. That's just a really interesting philosophical argument. We'll just, I just thought we'd throw it out there for you guys to consider and think about. I'm sure it could be developed in more ways. You could tie this into maximal being, you know, understanding of God. You could tie it into the moral argument because of, uh, of the primacy of love in the moral argument. Moral argument gets you to God. You, you say, well, then God must be love because that's what the ultimate moral is. Um, anyway, just, just ideas on things, how they tie together and they give us, um, they give us a description of God that's consistent with Christian teaching and theology. Like first John says, God is love. That is, that was not some popular normal view of God. That was the biblical view of God, the Christian view of God, not something else. Um, so let's talk about now the resurrection of Jesus Christ because there is, 
as, as my viewers will know, and a lot of you guys out there will know, there is an, a historical argument or case that can be made for the f- historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is exclusively Christian. You, know, you certainly can't make this case for anybody else. It, this rules out uh, a bunch of different cult groups. It rules out Islamic theology, which teaches that Jesus wasn't even crucified. It rules out lots of lots of other things. Um, so what what exactly is, in a nutshell, like a real a brief sketch of the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus? Absolutely. So we've already shown, uh, or at least started to show, that the Gospels and Acts are based on eyewitness testimony. Uh, that they are they go back back to the apostles themselves. Uh, the confirmations in Acts, in particular, show that uh, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. There's a whole bunch of evidence on that. Um, I recommend Craig Keener's four volume set on the Book of Acts if you want the the full case. Um, or, or and also Lydia McGrew's book Hidden Plain View also makes some really good contributions on that as well. Um, so the author of Acts clearly was a traveling companion of Paul. That being the case, he was present with Paul in Jerusalem in Acts 21, where he meets with James and all the Jerusalem elders uh, in, in prison with Paul in Caesarea for two years, and so had access to the apostles as well. Um, and there's tons of evidence showing that the, the four Gospels and Acts uh, are grounded in eyewitness testimony. That being the case, then, we have to take seriously what they say concerning the nature and variety of the claimed resurrection experiences of the apostles. Um, that this actually goes right back to apostolic testimony. Um, and of course, the, res- the resurrection experiences were polymodal or multi-sensory in character, involving multiple sensory modes, not just sight, but group conversation, physical contact, etc. And was extended across time, 40 days, according to Acts 1. So it wasn't just one brief and confusing episode. Uh, furthermore, we have evidence in 1 Corinthians 15 that the original apostles claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to them. This is actually completely independent of the four Gospels and Acts that we have. 1 Corinthians 15, for I deliver to you, this is from verse 3, for I deliver to you as a first importance why I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one entirely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I would harden any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so they believed. So so you so you believed. Um, and so uh, here we see um, in verses 3 through 7, we have what many scholars consider to be an ancient creedal tradition that Paul is passing on to the Corinthian Christians. Uh, and there's a number of reasons for that. One is the use of the Aramaic name Cephas, which is an early name for Peter. It's, it's, high, it's highly rhythmic. It's designed for ease of memorization. It's got a sort of creedal structure, uh, etc. And also, um, uh, most scholars think that Paul likely received this creed probably upon his visit to Jerusalem. Three years after his conversion is recounted in Galatians 1, where he meets with Peter and James, the very people mentioned in this creed. But supposing that most scholars are wrong on this, and this actually isn't a creed at all, and actually this is just Paul's own words, let's just imagine that to be the case for a moment. Read verse 11 again. Whether then it was I or they, speaking of the apostles, so we preached and so you believed. He thus assumes that the Corinthian Christians understand his proclamation of the resurrection to be consistent with what's already been preached to them by the Jerusalem apostles, in particular, Peter, James, and the Twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so either way, it shows that the original apostles claimed Jesus had risen from the dead. 
And we have further evidence in 1 Corinthians that there were people who were familiar with Peter's teaching, specifically Peter's teaching, because they were saying, I am of Cephas. Right. Yeah. So he's writing to the audience who who can fact check him about the original proclamation of Peter, about him have, being an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. So there's, there's, no, there's no case for saying that the disciples didn't really proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. And then similarly, that they were less than sincere about their belief that they'd seen him risen from the dead on multiple occasions and different environments and stuff like that. So what do you do with all this data? What is the conclusion of all that information? So, so the next question becomes, well, okay, so the apostles claim Jesus rose from the dead. And, and it's, it seems that uh, it's very difficult to imagine that they were honestly mistaken about this because of the polymodal or multisensory character of their claimed experiences. And also the fact it was allegedly over a 40-day span. It wasn't just one brief and confusing episode. Um, that they claim to have had breakfast with Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They claim to have touched Jesus physically. They claim to have had group conversations with Jesus. So clearly, this isn't something that they could have been plausibly, honestly mistaken about. Right? Either they were telling the truth that Jesus really did rise from the dead, or they just made it up. I think one of those two explanations it has to be has to be taken as the best. So then what about the hypothesis that they just made the thing up, made this whole thing up and actually just, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead? Well, um, one counter to that is the fact that they were willing to die for their Christian testimony, uh, which integral to which was the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we have particular documentation for the martyrdom of Peter, Jesus' closest disciple, and Jesus' own brother, James. Uh, for example, um, First Clement speaks about the martyrdom of Peter in uh, his letter to the uh, Clement of Rome's first, uh, his letter to the, the church in Corinth. He mentions the martyrdom of Peter uh, as well as the martyrdom of Paul. And uh, um, we also have in John 21, Jesus, anticipate, Jesus predicts or forecasts Peter's death by crucifixion. And if John was writing it towards the end of the first century, uh, most scholars say 90 to 95 CE, then it seems very unlikely he would have attributed that prediction to Jesus had it not actually happened that way, right? Um, then we have some second century sources that speak about Peter's death as well, Oregon, Tertullian, etc. Um, then we um, have the martyrdom of James, uh, the Lord's brother. Um, and, and, and let me just say also on Peter that Peter denied the Lord three times to save his own skin, so fearful was he of crucifixion. And yet something really transformed Peter such that he was willing to be crucified and not just be crucified, but According to Oregon, he was willing to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel himself worthy to be killed in the same manner as his Lord. Now, James, the Lord's brother, um, we have uh, Flavius Josephus, who was not a Christian. Um, he was a Jewish historian. Uh, he, in, in, in volume 20 of Antiquities of the Jews, speaks about uh, the martyrdom of James. Uh, and it's also documented for us by Hecisibus, who was a second century Christian historian. Uh, in the fifth book of his memoirs, it's quoted by the church historian Eusebius. And uh, basically, James, it appears, was thrown from the, the Temple Mount and bludgeoned to death. And I'd like to ask the skeptic, how much would it take to convince you that your elder brother was the Yahweh of the Old Testament to the point of martyrdom? Now, imagine that you're doing Bible studies with your older brother, and you're studying how God poured the Ten Plagues upon the Egyptians, appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, led the Israelites through the Red Sea, etc. And your elder brother is like, yep, that was me. I did all that. <laughs> it was strained credulity. Uh, and yet that's exactly what James came to believe. And of course, in the book of James, in chapter two, 
he refers to Jesus as the Lord of glory. Wow. James calls his own brother the Lord of glory. And we have evidence that James was actually a skeptic during Jesus' lifetime. Yeah, lest, so, we, lest we think James is just a gullible, you know, easily persuaded man who's going to believe this about his brother, you know, just by a mere claim. What, what was James' response to Jesus while he was living his ministry, doing miracles? How did James respond to those things? Right, exactly. In John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, not even Jesus' own brothers believed in him. In, in Mark chapter 3, when his family come to take him home, take Jesus home, they say he's out of his mind. Now, to confirm this, in John 19, when Jesus is on the cross, uh, and he, Jesus entrusts the care of his mother, Mary, not to his own brother, James, but to the beloved disciple. Why not his own brother? Perhaps he wanted to, his mother taken care of by a believer. And so it seems that James was not a believer at that particular point in time. And yet very shortly after the resurrection, the brothers of Jesus are converted. How do we know this? Because in Acts chapter 1, they're portrayed as praying alongside Jesus' mother and the disciples. Um, and First Corinthians 15, I think, provides the best explanation. Jesus appeared to James. Now, I can provide some further support that, for the veracity of the appearance to Peter and James. And that is what I call the criterion of restraint or the principle of restraint. Um, there's only a single um, explicit mention of the appearance, the individual appearance to Peter and James in the Bible. And that is in 1 Corinthians 15. There is a, a passing allusion to the individual appearance to Peter in Luke chapter 24, when the Emmaus disciples um, in verse 34, find the disciples saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Right, that's the only allusion in the Gospels to the individual appearance to Simon Peter. Um, why is it that although Luke is aware that there's been an individual appearance to Simon Peter, never mentions, never gives us a narrative or a transcript of their conversation, and none of the other Gospels do either, um, it seems that uh, the best explanation is that uh, that uh, for whatever reason. The, uh, Peter and James had not made a, a, a transcript or a, a report of their private encounter with Jesus available for publication because it was a private meeting. Uh, it seems that if they were just making this stuff, this stuff up, then they would feel a liberty just to make up a narrative concerning the appearance to, to Peter and James, the individual appearances. And notice it's the individual appearances for which we don't have a narrative, which is which seems to suggest that that was that's possibly the explanation for this. And it's especially striking that Luke evidently is aware of the individual appearances of Simon Peter. So it's not like he just doesn't know about it or that Paul made it up much later. Mm-hmm. But Luke's aware of it, but does not give us any further information. As, I think that's an interesting pattern as well. Yeah, that seems consistent too, as I've been studying Mark uh, even recently, about the idea that there's there's this sort of awareness in the gospel writers that they want multiple witnesses for the things that they're that they're laying out. They want multiple witnesses. And so, you know, with the women at the tomb, there's 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 always multiples. With um with uh with the appearances of Jesus, it's it's the group ones that are highlighted because they they want these the weight of multiple witnesses behind the claims because they they're just like us. They want to know it's true. Um neat stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, you you complement that with the evidences for the empty tomb, uh, which are many and varied as well. You have the evidence from the fact that the empty tomb was discovered by women, for example. Um, and women, of course, in, in patriarchal ancient Palestine was not highly regarded. The, their testimony was only worth half that of a man, for example. Um, and it seems unlikely that 
the early the, the gospel writers would have invented female witnesses had the male witnesses to choose from. Um, it seems that the the best explanation for why they have female witnesses be the primary witnesses to the empty tomb is because they really were the chief witnesses to the empty tomb. And so the gospel authors faithfully record this, for them, awkward and embarrassing fact. Um, we also have um, uh, some other evidences, for example, um, the er- the earliest Jewish polemic against the early Christian movement was that the disciples had stolen the body, which of course presupposes a vacancy of the tomb. Otherwise, why invent a story for how it got to be empty? This is recorded in Matthew twenty seven, or sorry, Matthew twenty eight, and it's also recorded in Justin Martyr's dialogue with the Jewish philosopher Trifo in the second century. Another piece of evidence for the empty tomb is um, what I call a, a reconcilable variation, um, and this is uh, where you have. Uh, different documents reporting an event which seem at first blush to conflict with one another, but then upon further inspection, uh, all apparent tension disappears or upon learning some new information or something like that. And so it it provides evidence for the independence of the account. So for example, in John chapter, uh, in John chapter, um, actually look at the synoptic gospels, Mark 16 verse one reports the, the woman going to the tomb. It says when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. Um, if we look at um, Matthew uh, 28, verse 1. So it says, no, after- three women, right? Three different women. Yeah, exactly. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Uh, so there's... Uh, Multiple women going to the tomb. Luke 24, verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So um, in all three of the synoptic gospels, we have multiple women going to the tomb on Easter morning. In John chapter 20, verse 1, however, it says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So it seems on first blush, on first reading, that actually John is suggesting that Mary was the only one who came to the tomb. Mary Magdalene is the only woman at the tomb on Easter morning, con- contradicting apparently the synoptic gospels, but then continue reading into verse two. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we, plural pronoun, do not know where they have laid him. So Mary's choice of words there reveals in passing that there were other women with her. And so John, John's report of these words shows that he knows this, and it dovetails with the other Gospels and points to independence of the accounts. Uh, let me just give one more example of evidence for the empty tomb. Um, this is um, less known evidence for the empty tomb, but it's, all, but it's, but it's quite cool nonetheless and worth, worth sharing. Um, if we look at the, the um, narratives concerning the women again, let's look at the list of women that followed Jesus from Galilee. This is in Luke chapter 8, first three verses. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Okay, So we can infer from the previous chapter, that's Luke 7, that Jesus and his disciples are in Galilee, uh, and Capernaum is on the so, so Capernaum is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it's also reported that the women are from Galilee because Joanna was the wife of Herod's um, Herod's household manager, and Herod, of course, was the tetrarch of Galilee. Um, and so um, there, these women are following him from Galilee. 
Now, if we look at the um, the crucifixion narrative in Mark 14, notice that we have a list of women again. It says in verse 40 and 41, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So the names overlap only partially with Luke 8. In Mark and Matthew, the names are Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome. There is no mention here of Joanna or Susanna. And Luke 8 doesn't mention Mary, the mother of James or Salome. Um, it doesn't at all look like Luke added the passage in chapter 8 in order to place or put the woman in place earlier in Jesus' ministry and thus fit his narrative together with Matthew and Mark concerning the woman at the cross because the names are only partially the same. Luke would have presumably included Mary, the mother of James and Salome, and probably left out Susanna if he had fictionalized the verses in chapter 8 on the basis of Mark's mention of the woman at the cross. And Luke himself mentions the woman who came from Galilee at the cross and burial, but doesn't even name any of them there in Luke chapter 23. Um, both accounts, therefore, confirm apparently independently that there was a group of women who had begun following Jesus in Galilee, who had continued to do so, and who prayed, uh, sorry, who helped Jesus in, in concrete ways, such as uh, ministering or providing. Now, if we look at the resurrection account in Luke 24, verses 6 through 8, we read, uh, and I quote, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they, that's the woman who had come with him from Galilee, we see that from chapter 23, verse, verse 55, remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now notice this. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. Um, so um, this, um, so this, uh, so this uh, makes it clear that these women really were personally with Jesus in Galilee and heard uh, what um, what he said there. When Luke names various women who, who brought the disciples news of the empty tomb and the message of the angel in Luke 24, 10, he names Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joanna, and says that there were other women as well. So once again, he doesn't seem to be trying to reproduce his own list in chapter eight um, for Mary, the mother of James was not in that list. And Susanna isn't mentioned in 24, verse 10, nor is he reproducing Mark's list of women at the cross, nor Mark's list of women who came to the tomb in Mark 16, 1, since Salome isn't included in Luke's list and Joanna, who's unique to Luke, is not included in Mark's list. Uh, Luke seems to be listing women whom he really knows are present for the events on Easter morning. And evidently he isn't sure about Susanna's presence or just doesn't bother to mention her. And he knows that Mary, the mother of James, was there on Easter morning, even though she isn't listed in his chapter eight. Um, and so it becomes uh, kind of an undesigned coincidence here that's internal to Luke, uh, a way in which you have fairly distant parts of Luke's own narrative that fit together in an apparently casual and non-deliberate way. Mary, Ma uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna, and various other women were with Jesus in Galilee and heard uh, heard there Jesus' own prediction of his crucifixion and resurrection. And so they subsequently went with him to Jerusalem and were present at the, the cross burial and empty tomb. So there's a further you know, indication of, of the empty tomb narrative as well. Yeah. And then, of course, the Jewish nature of um, gathering for Passover gives another reason to support that they would have traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem at that time as well. Uh, but what we're, if I could summarize, in case anybody got lost there, what he's saying is the way that they describe these stories 
including different people and different angles and how it ties together with different parts of the different gospels is to simply say that the authors of the gospels are aware of this data independently. They're not simply getting it from each other. That means we have independent accounts of the empty tomb, giving it uh, more of a, of a strong case for the historicity of, of the empty tomb. Um, is that about right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really neat stuff. It goes into great detail. I have a whole video on the empty tomb and I actually had a, a an atheist who let me know, a former atheist, he uh, stopped being an atheist, became a Christian and watching the video on the empty tomb was a big part of it for him. And I just was uh, really, really, obviously really excited and blessed to hear that. Pretty neat. So last thing I want to talk about is this, and we're going to, we're going to shut down pretty, pretty soon here. We've gone pretty long and I'm, I'm going to be late for a meeting I have <laughs> right now, but um, uh, I want to discuss really quick why a cumulative case. So let me, let me give you guys the names of the, the arguments we've given you so far. And then I want to let Jonathan explain what's the power of adding these things up. So we give prophecy and we gave a few examples. There's a lot more. We talked about the unity of the Bible. We talked about undesigned coincidences. Uh, we talked about the general reliability of the gospels and acts. We talked about the origin of the disciples belief in the deity of Jesus. We talked about natural theology and we went through the Kalam cosmological argument, the fine tuning argument biologically, as well as the fine tuning argument from the, the, you know, complexity of the universe. We talked about a philosophical argument for uh, Trinitarian, Trin- Trinitarian beliefs. We talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and historical verification. We didn't even get into the objections to the resurrection. I'll just mention this real quick. There aren't any good ones. Like, the objections are really poor. There isn't even a good historical reconstruction without the resurrection of Jesus because the history of the of the time sort of breaks down when you try to ignore the fact that Jesus rose. Um, and then so, Jonathan, what would you say is the power of adding these arguments together? What does right. this do for us? So the beauty of a cumulative case is that Christianity rests not just on one single piece of evidence, but on lots of pieces of evidence. Uh, there's no single spectacular piece of evidence that establishes in one fell swoop the truth of Christianity. Um, but when you put all of these evidences together, uh, it becomes a very, very powerful case. And I think that's to our advantage because uh, if the evidence, um, if if it turned out in the in the course of time that one of these pieces of evidences wasn't quite as strong as we thought it was, then we still have a huge network of other evidences that we can appeal to. And so um, the case of Christian, the case for Christianity is very, very robust and. Uh, and and when we have lots of different pieces of evidence that cumulatively, convergently, independently point in the same direction, that gives us enormous cause for confidence in the veracity of the gospel. I agree. <laughs> I agree. It's powerful. It's um, and, and this is just an introduction, guys. There's a lot more arguments that could be brought that we could share. And again, there may be some flaw in one of the arguments that we've given. That doesn't mean that Christianity falls apart. Obviously, we think these are good reasons. We wouldn't have brought them to you. But it's just important to make that point. Uh, some people think if they can just nitpick one issue, then they've destroyed Christianity. And that sort of ignores the case that's being made. If you guys are interested in, in finding out more about Jonathan McClatchy, uh, his website and his YouTube channel are in the video description down below. And um, I do recommend checking his content out. In fact, Jonathan, you're about to step up your game on YouTube, aren't you? You're, you're going to be doing more content coming up. Yeah, I'm hoping to make some more more videos, do some live streams even, maybe do some Gorilla Christian panels. Uh, so stay tuned for that. You can find uh, my YouTube channel. So if you type my name into YouTube, Jonathan McClatchy, or also type in Apologetics Academy, you'll find my, my Apologetics Academy ministry channel. Uh, you can also go to my website, apologetics-academy.org. Yeah. So I do recommend, you know, checking that stuff out. I, and, and you guys, just so you know, I... 
I don't even know if me and Jonathan agree on everything. I'm positive we don't. There's things we're going to disagree on. We we do agree on the basics for sure. Um, but uh, but I I'm trying to help other Christian YouTubers become better known because God has blessed me with you know a platform here, and I want to use it for His glory. And part of that is realizing that there's a body of Christ who's doing great work uh, in preaching and teaching and apologetics. And I'd like for us to all be more aware of these people because um, it's not about me. <laughs> so, uh, so Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time. I think it's getting late where you are, uh, where I am. It's still, it's, it's lunchtime actually over here, but you're in England. What time is it? Or no, are you in England right now? Yeah, it's coming up to 8.30. Yeah, coming up to 8.30 PM. Yeah, for me, it's like coming up to 12.30. So thank you so much. Um, yeah, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day. I'm so sorry I didn't get time to go to your guys' questions, but I have a meeting I have to attend and this video is pretty long already. So Lord bless you. Uh, be on the watch out on my channel. I'll be putting more stuff out on the Gospel of Mark and on and then on Monday and then on Tuesday, I'll be teaching uh, more on the Hebrew roots movement. We'll talk about the book of Acts in particular and how it relates to Gentiles observing the law or not. So uh, looking forward to it. Thanks again, Jonathan. Any final word for us? Yeah, that's great. Thanks for tuning in and uh, look forward to collaborating again in the future. Awesome.